All right, well, we're going to get started. Let's, uh, let's open up with the invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off at Proverbs chapter 8. And of course, last week we went off on a tangent at verse 15 and 16, where in particular we see recorded uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. That's where we left off. By me, and again, this is wisdom speaking, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. And of course, we went over to Psalm 2, we went on our way to Revelation, and we reflected on the reality that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Christ, and he reigns as king supreme. All who reign under him either reign justly and in accord with his reign, or unjustly and contrary to his reign. In Psalm 2, there is quite a number of threats and negative promises that he will dash them in iron. Uh, with, an, with an iron rod, he will dash them like uh, potter's vessels. You remember that for those who reject him and who do not rule underneath him. But conversely, you have the promise of rejoicing. Rejoice and be wise, O rulers, who are underneath him. And Uh, put themselves under his rule. So that is, I think, frankly, a fundamental and very important point. I'm not at all disappointed we spent the time last week on it because we have to rid ourselves of the erroneous view of separation of church and state and also of some cobwebs and rust that have overtaken our understanding of That was good. (laughs) So, um, also then, yeah, where was I? Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Christian breakdancing, a topic for next week's class. Uh, um, Yeah, okay, so, yeah, 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 this this whole business of rulers then um, being under Christ... And we're reminded, I think, very practically that this is a down-to-earth teaching of uh, the Lutheran Church. Okay, wave, just wave in the back if you. If I'll try to speak up a little and let me know if you can't if you can't hear. Okay, good enough. So, in the um, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Luther reminds us in the Catechism that we're praying for all things necessary in order to have that daily bread. And you can trace that back, of course, daily bread doesn't simply materialize ex nihilo at Costco, but obviously comes through an entire nexus of distribution and farmers. But in order for farmers to farm, you have to ultimately have a government doing its job to protect the farmers so that they can farm and so that all the wheels of the economy can turn so that there can be bread for the eater. And thus we are also praying when we pray for daily bread for good and devout rulers. I think there's been a part missing in our Lutheran piety in realizing that we're praying that God would grant us Christian rulers. Good and devout rulers. Um, they don't need to rule in accord with the way and the laws of ancient Israel. We're not asking to go back to Deuteronomy and establish the laws we find there. That's not the point. 
But the point is that God would grant us good and devout godly uh, rulers. And then likewise in the large catechism, which is of course meant for those who have mastered the small, we're taught the same thing under commandment four, where God gives the authority um, to the state, to the uh, ordo politicus, as it is called, to rule in such a way that it rules according to justice. That's natural law. It does what is right and not, doesn't pervert what is right, but does what is right and serves to protect the church that it might flourish. Okay, so that gives us grounds then by which we as Christians can critique our rulers, can call them to account, um, but also can rejoice when we find rulers ruling justly, and especially when we find rulers who are godly Christian rulers. Okay, so obviously we're in the middle of this long poem, the second of third poems of wisdom, and we pressed on through those central points. Let's just go over to verses 17 and following. I think we went through these quickly, and that's fine. That probably suffices. Wisdom continues, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. All right, so there is a pursuit here. Now, obviously, Solomon is writing to who? To Israel, to God's people. These are people who are in fellowship with Yahweh. And thus, there is no problem whatsoever with this language of those who seek me diligently, find me. Indeed, we see our Lord Jesus saying the same thing as he speaks to his disciples. Seek first the kingdom or reign of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So, this idea of seeking, pursuing, Loving, which of course is very active. I love those who love me. Your love is demonstrated. Are we coming up on Valentine's Day? Yeah. Yeah, so good luck loving your significant other. Although I should push back a little bit here, since when did Valentine's Day become so one sided? Did that hit too close to home? Though the women are saying it isn't. It isn't. Okay, well, I see, uh, I see that we might have struck a nerve. <laughs> the men are silent and the women are... That aside, good luck trying to demonstrate your love on Valentine's Day with no manifest demonstration. What are we doing for Valentine's Day? Nothing. You already know that I love you. How's that going to go? That's not going to go very well. You might be in my office the next week for some marital counseling. You never know. So, love is of necessity manifest in action. And thus, also here in wisdom, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Okay, these are riches, I mean, yeah, riches of heaven, treasures of heaven, as our Lord would say, where thieves cannot steal nor moth or rust destroy. And again, this motif with the path, which we've seen before, obviously the opposite path is the end of chapter 7, where following the foolish woman, the adulterous woman, her path leads to her house, which is in fact hell. Here we follow after wisdom, and her path is ultimately to, to the granting of an inheritance and a filling of treasuries. 
Okay, we go into a profoundly Christological stretch. Not without its challenges, but worth it. Verse 22, the Lord, obviously Yahweh, possessed me at the beginning of his work. So, of course, we can just think, well, the Lord was wise when he he started to create everything. But more is obviously being stated. And here we're going to see the Christoform nature of wisdom. As John puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Now, this is interesting language because this brought forth isn't terribly technical. It's ho-le-la-ti, and it actually means like to twist or to whirl or to dance. So it's this kind of incredible, I think, incredibly beautiful, poetic idea that before there were the depths, the depths usually referring to the seas, so before there were the depths, before there was anything, before those waters you see in Genesis 1, the depths over which the Spirit of God are hovering, there was wisdom or there was Christ. And with a twisting or whirling or dancing, I was brought forth, or I came forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, and there's the same word, I was brought forth, or Again, it's just impossible to translate or impossible to put into beautiful English. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, a lot of speculation as to what that means, um, Do you remember in Genesis the idea that there was this canopy? The pre-Diluvian, the pre-flood world, we know very little about, and what Scripture speaks is very hard for us to understand. It seems as though at some point in time there's a canopy of water that surrounds the earth. Is that just a reference to the atmosphere or to something else and something more? My guess would be something else and something more, that after the flood, um, those were some of the waters that were dumped out upon the earth not to return again. So at any rate, that's probably best guess in regard to this phrase, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Continuing 28, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. I mean, isn't this wonderful to reflect on the Son and the Father? And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the sons of Adam. Or the children of man, as the ESV puts it. The sons of Adam, more literal. So a beautiful, beautiful image. Now, if you go the do, if you go re go through this, the dominating motif is water. Because of course the all of creation was brought forth from water. Even as God was speaking it into being, you know, you go back to Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and 
the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, and then God said, let there be, and there was. And so there's this water and word through which all creation is formed. And again, if you take the son here, he's delighting in this, participating in this, like a master workman. And he himself is the delight of his father, and all of creation is a matter of divine rejoicing. I think that this helps us understand, then, when the world is plunged into sin and into curse and into death, why it is that the Son is so willing to go. He delights in the work of his Father's hands. He cannot stand to see that work be undone. He cannot stand to see that work simply lay in ruins forever. So, out of love for his Father, he does what must be done in order to restore that world that he and his Father had co-created, so to speak. Just beautiful. Every once in a while you get these glimpses of the father and son relationship in Scripture. And here is certainly one. Um, Of course, then, it should be of no surprise that when Jesus comes to make all things new, he is doing so through water and his word. And that's why baptism isn't just an incidental thing or something, you know, God thought up like, you know, I don't know, let's do this baptism thing. It sounds weird. Uh, that'll be cool. Let's, let's have John the Baptist come baptizing. Let's have Jesus be baptized. And then let's have Jesus, because all of this washing is just sort of incidental and strange. And No, it's foundational to what it means to partake in the new creation. Just as this creation was made through water and the word, so also the new creation will be made through water and the word. If you would participate in this new creation, you must be born from above by water and spirit. So again, even if you go back in Genesis, rereading it through the lens of John, you have, the, you have God, the Father, You have the Spirit hovering over the water. You have the Word speaking. And incidentally, that's exactly what you see when Jesus himself is baptized and it comes up out of the waters. The heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. He's standing in those waters, so the Spirit is again hovering over the face of the waters on his person. The Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The word of the Father, identifying the Son as the one who is his word, to which, to whom we should listen. So the dawn of a new creation takes place at the baptism of Jesus. And that's why then he has us all be baptized into him to be born anew and made anew. So again, we can see all the rudiments and roots of that um, here in these verses. Now, so much of this is poetic. So it's not meant to be overly technical. Um, I will open it up and see if you have any questions or any thoughts um, but again, there may be elements of this that are just simply mysterious or poetic, or I might not be able to clarify much. All right, any thoughts or questions you have? Okay, so up, one, up here in the front. I mean, again, we, re, we recall what our Lord says, that you search the scriptures, for in them you believe that you have life. It is they that speak of me. And here, as clear as day, we can see Proverbs speaking of Christ. Yeah, please. I was just looking up to verify this this morning on the way to church. Um, William Wordsworth, beginning of the Romantic movement, Slavin and all that, if those of you are aware of his new book, he suggests 
find poetry as the emotion recollected in tranquility. So to apply this to Proverbs, I'm thinking God is saying this with his whole heart and mind, his whole being to Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. It is that deeper communication of God that almost defies the literalistic or the simple. That's deeper and, and more profound. Okay, so with these things then as the basis, wisdom turns in verse 32 and says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Again, I would assert to you that so much of Jesus' instruction is better understood in this genre of wisdom literature and as his laying out what precisely his ways are. Think of the, uh, think of, and I think that, yeah, I will, I mean, I know it's provocative to say and oh well, but I really do think it's, it's a little bit of a mistake to, add, to look at the Sermon on the Mount, for example, which is Jesus sitting down and teaching authoritatively. You have heard of old that it was said, but I tell you. right? Imagine if, imagine if a pastor stood up in the pulpit and said, well, you've heard what Jesus said, but I tell you. Right? That's effectively what Jesus himself says. You've heard what Moses said, but I tell you. So he claims equal and even greater authority than Moses. That's what it means that he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes. So as Jesus teaches from the mountaintop in the Sermon on the Mount, and here's the provocative part, I think if we say, now what part of this is law and what part of this is gospel, we're already missing something essential. That he's speaking in the genre of wisdom of this is my way. What we call justification and sanctification, what we call law and what we call gospel, are already baked into the cake. They can sort of be extracted, but with difficulty. But the whole cake is simply wisdom calling out to the Son, saying, listen to me, blessed, and that's the beatitude. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins with uh, nine beatitudes, Blessed are those who keep my ways. And remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends. The man who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man who builds his house upon the sand. But the one who hears them and does them It's like a man who builds his house upon the rock. So that hearing and doing simply being one integrated reality, receiving his wisdom and keeping his ways. Okay, hopefully that makes some sense. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Another beatitude at 34, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. This is like what the paparazzi does to Hollywood stars. They pop outside of the house and there they are snapping their photos or they go to the window and look out and There's somebody, you know, hanging from the telephone line, snapping pictures. That is maybe a little overdone, but the idea of how we want to wait for wisdom and pursue wisdom. Watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, so we want to be attuned to what wisdom is doing, what wisdom is saying, and ever ready to receive. All right, verse 35, for whoever finds me finds life. Now, that's completely juxtaposed with the end of 7, chapter 7. And just to remind you, this is the 
the son who potentially gets seduced and turns aside to the ways of the adulterous, foolish woman. He follows her to her house, and it is the way of Sheol, chapter 7, verse 27, going down to the chambers of death. And now this other woman, personified wisdom, says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So obviously then there are these two women, these two ways, these two ends. One is death, one is life. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. A remarkable statement. But again, just simply re-emphasizing that point, which I hope we've covered already, that the wisdom here is faith in Christ and in the teachings of Christ. It's not simply like, what do they call them these days? Life hacks or something like that. This isn't practical stuff. This is I mean, in the, in, it's not just mere practical earthly wisdom. It's, it has its own practicalness because it has its own practicality because it has its own practice. But it is, nonetheless, wisdom that comes from the Lord. And the alternate is death. So, you know, reflecting on these themes, all who hate me love death. All who love me hate death. I think both would be true. Let's pause there. That brings us... Um, Let me check on that. I don't have it marked. I think that that brings us to 36. Yeah, that brings us to the close. Chapter 8 is the close of the second poem about wisdom. And then we go on to the third poem with chapter 9. So this is a good place to break and to pause. You uh, You can see how the two women are contrasted with each other and how one is death and the other is life and one is Christ and the other is the absence or rejection of Christ. All straightforward, all clear? Okay, there's a hand um, just right two rows in front of you. Um. Can you give me a, an explanation of, for example, um, well, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. Mm-hmm. And uh, we as a Christians, how can we realize or how can we get that wisdom that, for example, the ten virgins, half of them you know, didn't have enough oil, or the guy, the rich guy, said that I did all this, but how can I inherit uh, uh, heaven if I did all this already? And Jesus, right, told him to, you know, give up his his fortune. So, how can we realize that we are not just? Uh, we don't want to stand in front of God then and say, okay, I never knew you were. Because those are also Christians. Mm-hmm. So how can we know, you know, that we, we're not get to that point, you know, that yeah. will be too late eventually? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that uh, the thinking in First John at many points is very much an outcropping of this way of Jesus thinking and Jesus teaching and the wisdom paradigm. And if you remember in 1 John, I'll just extract two points and not in the order they come in the text. But the first point being, I write these things to you that you may not sin. So again, obviously, goal one is following our master as his disciples, as he leads us in the way of righteousness. 
and following him in such a way that the goal is, I mean, if any Christian wakes up today and says, boy, I sure am looking forward to sinning, it's kind of a problem. Let's see how many different ways I can sin today. That's kind of a problem. If a Christian lays down at night and lays, lays on his bed with his eye closed and his meditation is, how can I do wrong? How can I profit myself? How can I exploit this person? How can I get revenge? There's a real problem there. The attitude of the, of the disciple's heart is to follow after the master. So the first question is, do you recognize that he is your master and you are his disciple? I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now taking the second principle, which obviously comes first in John's epistle, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does it mean to follow after Jesus, to have him as our master? We try to think his thoughts. We try to speak his words. We try to do his deeds. In whatever ways those are manifest in our life, we try to avoid those things which are sinful. But if we do sin, we have him. The same advocate, the righteous one. And indeed, part of following him is inevitably recognizing our sin. That's part of being a Christian. Now the world will say, look, you've fallen into sin. You've done something that is contrary to what you yourself have declared to be right. You are a hypocrite. That is a lie of the devil. You're not a hypocrite if every single Sunday morning you come to the divine service and say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. Here is the goal that I want to meet, that I aspire to meet, that perhaps this week, in some degree or other, I will meet, but I am always going to fall short of the glory of God, and I am going to confess that and be forgiven. Do you remember what Jesus says to the adulterous woman? In gospel proclamation, he says to her, who then remains to condemn you? Obviously, no one's there. It's crickets, if you remember how this all unfolds. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Therefore, go right back into your sin. No, go and sin no more. Now, what does Jesus mean? You think he's pulling a fast one? You think he's doing some rhetorical, like, I don't know, I can't do the tricky Jesus anymore. I'm so ill of it. It's just just dishonest. You've got to do this tricky Jesus where Jesus is like, go and sin no more. And then when she inevitably can't, you know, he supposedly returns to her and it was all just rhetoric. That's what I mean by tricky Jesus. And it's just silly. Jesus is straightforward. Jesus is understood by the simplest, including the little children. He says, go and sin no more. What is to be her attitude? To leap back into the sins from which she has just been absolved? No. To strive against them. First and foremost, to cut the manifest action out. No no more adultery. (laughs) And then to strive against whatever other sins might remain in her. You can again hear the words of John echoing, I I write these things to you that you may not sin. That's not a naive statement. It's a statement that positions us. It's an attitudinal statement. It's the direction in which our hearts take as we follow our master, again, in thought, word, and deed. Someone always comes swinging in on a rope. Yeah, 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 but you're not going to do that perfectly. Okay, It doesn't defeat the point, though. That is a point in and of itself. And then, yes, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Okay? To forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the whole point is, discipleship has baked into it. Plan A, don't sin. Plan B, when you do, confess and be cleansed. Then what? Plan A, don't sin. Go and sin no more. You see how this works? Yeah. Now, what Christianity, or what, so what, what errors have been attached to this? Well, many. Okay, but one error would be, um, I write these things to you that you may not sin. Oh, okay, so I can actually attain a point as a disciple of Jesus in which I no longer sin, in which I no longer need to confess. Well, what does John say to that? If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You haven't arrived at the point of perfection. You've arrived at the point of self-deceit. You think you finally made it to the top. In fact, you've fallen all the way to the bottom. You're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. Okay, so there's one error rebutted by the text, and that's this error that um, I, can, I can, in fact, become perfect over time in this life. Not going to happen. But what's the other error, and the more common error? This defeatist idea of, oh, I write these things to you that you may not sin? What legalism? Jesus can't, John can't actually mean that. Or when Jesus says to the, to the woman, um, go and sin no more. Oh, he's just playing rhetorical law gospel trick on her. And what happens then is this erasure of the idea that the pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of the master, is the desire to conform one's thoughts, words, and deeds to those of the master. And when that's lost, not only is that lost, but it's not lost for long because what swoops into the vacuum? What swoops into the vacuum is that trying, trying to conform your thoughts, words, and deeds to those of the masters is a theology of glory. You're not satisfied with the forgiveness of sins. And so you're trying to establish this other righteousness as you daily seek to sin no more, as you daily seek to walk in the light of the one who is the light. I mean, friends, it's utter nonsense. And it's just the the other side of the coin being attacked. I write these things to you that you may not sin. Go and sin no more. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Okay, I hope this stuff is... I mean, this is Christianity 101. This is Law and Gospel 101. This is Justification and Sanctification 101. But boy, has it gotten perverted and messed up. So I know that that wasn't maybe a direct answer to your question. But hopefully in in fleshing it out, you can see that the life of a Christian, um, as it plays itself out, particularly in this idea of seeking wisdom is we are desiring to be conformed into the image of Jesus, where we fall short of that daily, we confess our sins, and we're forgiven. That's built in. And that's kind of what I meant by that statement, that justification, sanctification, law, and gospel are all kind of baked into the cake of so many of the things that Jesus teaches, when in fact what he's he's laying out for us is a way contrary to the way of the wicked one and the way of the world. He's laying out for us the contours of the narrow path that leads to life. It's difficult, as opposed to the broad way that's easy and leads to destruction. Okay, I saw another hand pop up. Please. Um, did I hear you right? I think I did. That if you um, try to perfect yourself and be therefore perfect as your father's in heaven, that's thrown at me at times, um, that you're actually rejecting God's righteousness. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying that that's what, there's this new 20th century heresy that claims that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, an, I mean, when Jesus says, be ye perfect, okay, you actually have to look at what he's talking about there. In context, he describes the perfection of the Father as showing mercy. And he's instructing, he's in fact instructing his disciples to be like their father. So that, that's, um, you know, again, we are, 
if we can call upon God as our Father, then we are His children. Like Father, like sons. That's the whole point. Or like Father, like the Son. And thus, all these scriptures talking about us growing into the maturity of the mature man or the fullness of the mature man. That's Christ himself being conformed into his image. Is anyone ever going to achieve that perfectly? Of course not. And if you think you have yourself deceived. But that doesn't mean it's not there. And see, there's a, re- uh, there's a really poisonous theology that says, hey, all Jesus is doing is playing a bunch of rhetorical games and rhetorical tricks, and then as soon as you try, you're in fact guilty of trying to establish another righteousness, your own, over and against the forensic righteousness. I mean, the problem with that is it, is it utterly destroys the scriptures, mangles and does violence to the word of Christ, and results in a place that's utter foolishness. It's just utter foolishness. You cannot read the scriptures without doing violence to them. Anywhere where Paul exhorts or states something positively that you should do or negatively that you should not do, you have to say, if you're going to be honest at all, you have to say, Paul is a legalist. And he is establishing a ladder by which he now thinks we're going to climb into heaven. That's preposterous. That's not what he's doing. But what, he is, but what he is doing is simply laying out the contours of the path of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, I mean, again, all of this can be very concrete, too. If you're a father, you want to raise your children to be different than you? Well, that's a little complicated, isn't it? Insofar as I recognize qualities within myself that are worthy and emulatable, I want my son to be like me. Insofar as I recognize qualities within myself that are insufficient and should not be emulated, I want him to be different than me. But who also, that then who do I want him to be? What is the pattern any father wants? And this is applicable, of course, because this is a father writing to his sons. So what is the earthly father filled with the wisdom of Christ, want for his earthly sons. He wants them ultimately conformed not into his image, but into the image of the Father, or Christ, which is one and the same image. Christ is the image of God. That's the whole goal. So, I mean, again, no, no earthly Christian father just says, hey, I want, son, I want you to be totally free. Go do whatever you want to do. That's the freedom of the gospel. That's insane. Nobody, nobody, and, and it's insane because nobody parents that way. So that simply exposes the reality that the fatherly office and the fatherly love is one of conforming a son into the wisdom and ways of the heavenly father. Again, all of this stuff should be self-evident, but um, has really gotten kind of twisted and perverted and radicalized in the last 50, 60 years. I think especially in Lutheranism, sad to say. Okay, so hopefully then we're clear that uh, this wisdom is, uh, we're we're to listen to wisdom, we're to watch for wisdom, wait for wisdom, find wisdom, and we will find life, we will find God's favor. Um, To hate wisdom is in fact to love death. So two contrary paths, two mutually exclusive paths. Okay, um, yeah, please. On that, all who hate me love death, it stands in contrast to things that I hear like um, uh, death is a part of life or uh, death can be a friend or uh, you know, topics like uh, assisted suicide and these things. Oh, yeah. Very <laughs> sharp contrast. Yeah, it is. It is. And there's a whole nuanced discussion that could be had there, maybe another time. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it's obviously been noted, I think, first in the, on the Roman Catholic side, I have to give credit where credit's due, that we live in a culture of death and a culture that celebrates death and tries to love death. Is it any surprise, then, that it's a culture that's contrary to wisdom? You know, it manifests itself in all kinds of weird ways, too, doesn't it? I mean, you just notice, like, who, who does what for their houses on Halloween? <laughs> and, then, and then compare that to Christmas. It's kind of odd. Um, or, you know, like all the skull and crossbone, you know, tattoos and 
shirts and everything. It's like, what? It's, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, what are you trying to do? Trying to look like a bad guy, like a tough guy, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to harness or show forth or decorate yourself with the power of death, because in a very real sense, that's the strongest power this world knows and has, is death. And the strength of Christ trumps that in a laughable way because he has the power to raise from the dead. So it very much is then a culture of death against a culture of life and Christ versus Satan. Again, in Hebrews, uh, Satan is described as the one who has the power of death. It's the worst Satan can do to you. It's kill you. you know. I mean, there's lots of things on the way to that, of course, but that's the utmost expression of his power. And Christ, the utmost expression of his power is to raise from the dead. Okay, so on to then the third and final uh, hymn to wisdom or poem of wisdom at chapter 9. And this one will be familiar to you because it works itself into the lectionaries. I think both of them. I think the one year and the three year. Wisdom has built her house. Curiously here, wisdom is plural. And it just, it's, it's impossible to translate into English without it sounding silly. But wisdom is plural. And there's this plurality. You're going to see that next. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Now, that's a lot of pillars and not, would not have been uh, the architecture of the people at that time. So she is building a house, this sevenfold, uh, sevenfold pillars, this sevenfold wisdom. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. That is to say, she's laid out a feast. She's sparing no expense. So glorious house, glorious pillars, glorious feast, meat and wine, and the table prepared. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. And here's what they call. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And again, we've, we've marveled at that, of course, but the reality is before you can become wise in Christ, you must confess that you are foolish without him. So this is, this is um, those who account themselves as foolish, which is like what the work of the law, properly speaking, does to us, is it shows us that we're foolish. It shows us that our... It's not just our deeds that are the problem. I'm a generally good person, but every once in a while I mess up, or every once in a while I say the wrong thing, but I'm really a good person. Now, wisdom is that the things you do and the things you say come from somewhere, and that somewhere is you, and that you is the problem. That's the law. And so the law comes and humbles every person. And I mean, the law effectively says you're an idiot. And you either finally agree with the law or you keep trying to show you're not an idiot only to be shown repeatedly that you, in fact, are. And so then this call to the simple is really a call to all who have been humbled by the law. And I would would kind of add to this, even though I don't think it's a separate category, humbled by the hand of God working in their lives. And this is a, this is a cry um, and a call that welcomes people who realize, like, I've done the best I could and my life has not turned out the way I want it. I've done everything I possibly could and more, and it's a disaster. That's... That's the call to the simple. And by the way, I don't think, in, a, in this sense of the word, I don't think we ever outgrow being simple. <laughs> right? Because we all come to the Lord and say, what? I have no wisdom of my own. Grant me wisdom. This is what we say, I have no strength of my own. Grant me strength. Okay, so these, uh, these young women who, I, again... Um, Wisdom here, just beautifully, wonderfully, like a woman. I mean, very much like the church, isn't it? 
She's built her house, her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. It's like a church with the sacrament in it, isn't it? Okay, and then her young women are calling, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Okay, and then um, to him who lacks sense, and again, I think that's all of us spiritually by nature, we lack sense. She says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. We just had meat and wine, that reference to the eschatological feast at the end, and now it's, Bread and wine. Why do you think it's bread and wine? (laughs) Just as baptism isn't something God tacks on and thinks up and then just like tacks on in the New Testament, neither is the Lord's Supper something that Jesus just thinks up and tacks on at the end. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament in many, many ways various ways but here we see a foreshadowing again of the sacrament drink the wine i have mixed leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight so there's bread to be eaten wine to be drunk and um, this wine then is interesting because it says leave your simple ways so again that's to pursue wisdom now Not to pursue your own desires. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. So that's what it means to be simple. What do I feel like doing as simple? What would wisdom have me do is to depart from one's simple ways and live and to walk in the way of insight. Now, whereas wine uh, usually is, is thought to sort of deaden the senses, here... There's no such association. And I think that that would apply directly to the sacrament, that in receiving the sacrament, we are receiving that life that flows from the cross of Christ to us and that wisdom, which is grounded and rooted in the forgiveness of all our sins on account of his sacrifice. And in that forgiveness, in that life, in him, we receive wisdom. Okay, let's, uh, it looks like we're over out, out of time or maybe even a minute over. So let's pause there and we'll pick back up and we'll uh, conclude this section, the Lord willing, next week. The Lord be with you.